WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. We're always looking for more ways to have a greener environment. And we've talked about things like recycling and ways that we can use nature to make a greener environment and implement things such as bioplastics. But today we're going to learn more about bioplastics. We're here with Mo Alhaj and Nicole Mancina to tell us more about their research. Hi, Mo and Nicole. May you please introduce yourselves and your research for us? Thank you for having me here, Chelsea and, and Danny. Appreciate you bringing us here to interview us regarding our research. So I'm Mo Alhaj, a fourth year PhD candidate at Michigan State University in the Material Science and Engineering Department. My research focus is on bio-based and biodegradable polymers for medical device, consumer goods, and packaging applications. Our tasks mainly include polymer processing for mass production, aka pilot-scale production of polymers for these sorts of commercial applications. And I am Nicole Mancina. I have just graduated from Michigan State University in May of 2021 with my Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering. And I've been alongside Mo helping with his research since 2018. And we are very excited to be here today and to tell you guys a lot more. Well, first of all, congratulations on graduating, Nicole. And thanks for joining us today, as well as yourself, Mo, to talk to us about bioplastics. Just to get it out of the way. What is the difference between a bioplastic and the conventional plastics that we see, for example, like in our kitchen for Tupperware? When it comes to conventional plastics, we're talking about plastics such as polyethylene, polycarbonates, polypropylene. These sorts of plastics are what you see out there today. They're used in, in plastic bottles, they're used in plastic bags, and so on. These plastics are derived from petroleum-based materials. So they're called petroleum-based plastics, aka fossil from fossil fuels. So they're not derived from re renewable resources. And some of these plastics may not be biodegradable. That means it may not degrade under specific environmental conditions. When it comes to bio-based, biodegradable polymers or for bioplastics, these polymers are derived from renewable resources. That includes anything that contains starch. You could think of cassava, potato, just anything that's a crop, basically, or a plant-based material. So these are what bioplastics are. They can be bio-based or biodegradable, or even both. So conventional plastics that we use really every day can be from fossil fuels. They're non-renewable resources. And with the bio-based plastics, that's why they are such a huge advantage because they are biodegradable and they are coming from our natural resources from the earth. So much more earth-friendly, much more environmentally friendly. I think it's really good now that our audience will truly understand why this is so important. Because conventional plastics we normally hear about take so long to degrade, but these bioplastics can degrade so much quicker and naturally. You all mentioned that you're looking at polymer processing and that there's so many different components of bioplastics, such as cassava, corn, etc. So what are you specifically using for your bioplastics? we are working on basically two different types of plastics. They are starch-based plastics, such as thermoplastic starch or starch-based foams, as well as a well-known bio-based material called polylactide or PLA. Now, 
PLA is a bio-based, industrially compostable polymer that is used in packaging applications, in plastic utensils, you name it. So the materials that we work with, such as PLA and starch-based materials, the starch that we work with, it comes specifically from corn. However, we have worked with starch that is derived from potato, but the main resource that we work with comes from corn. Why is that? That's because it comes from the specific farms that are located in Nebraska. The main production plant of cornstarch is developed in the Nebraska area, as opposed to cassava and potato, which may be developed in Thailand, as well as other countries outside of America. It's really cool that you have this relationship with Nebraska to bring in the corn and potatoes to be able to do this sort of extraction. But how does that extraction actually go about inside of your laboratory setting? When farmers are provided the corn as a crop, this corn, basically they need to clean it and it goes what's called wet milling. What farmers run, right? Now, after the wet milling process, you wash the fibers of the corn and then you separate the proteins and the corn that's used for eating from the starch. That's what's called protein separation. Once you receive that starch, you receive it as a slurry. You don't receive it just as a dry starch, so you have to refine it over time. You refine it and then you dry it. Once the starch is refined and dried, it's finally ready to be used for plastics production or even for your food. That makes a lot of sense to me. So you have this starch that you've extracted from the corn, but what do you do with the starch after? Like, how does the starch turn into a bioplastic or a polymer? Once you have the final starch product, you need to convert it to sugars. And I'm talking about your natural sugars, by the way. In order to convert it to sugars, you just hydrolyze it. You wash it. So once it's converted to the sugars, you can ferment it to produce lactic acid. This may be a term that many listeners may be familiar with. It's the same lactic acid that's produced from your body. That lactic acid can be polymerized, can be used to produce the final product, polylactide or PLA. That PLA can then be further used for commercialization and its end life composting. And to add a little bit about what Mo was saying on lactic acid, it's also the chemical that is created whenever you finish working out and you feel sore. That's the lactic acid building up in your muscles. But it's really cool that you can use lactic acid following the starch extraction and transformation to create this polymer that you're working with. Chemically speaking, what are some of the advantages that this bioplastic has comparatively to conventional plastics? I would imagine that there's more reasons than it just being environmentally friendly. So yes, as Mo said earlier, polylactic acid has many applications to be used in industry. And what's very cool about this molecule is that it has what they're called stereoisomers, and they are called L-lactide, D-lactide, and mesolactide. And each of these have different types of material properties that can be involved into our applications. So that is why we work with all three. So polylactic acid, it has three stereoisomers, and a stereoisomer is when each or two of more compounds differ in their arrangement of the way the atoms are arranged are different. So polylactic acid are dimers. We have L-lactide, D-lactide, and then a mesolactide. And each of these have different methyl groups that are facing different directions, which allow it to give different varying properties and material properties that are used for different applications which is the benefit of this polymer. 
So by altering and modifying the amount of isomer that are in, our, in this plastic, we can change the if it's either crystalline or amorphous plastic. And what this means is that they will have different material properties, which give it the variety of applications it can be used for. With an amorphous plastic, a PLA, this can be used as an additive. It does not have a melting temperature versus a crystalline plastic, which a crystalline plastic just means that the structure is more tightly packed together. It can be used commercially for all of our applications like we discussed before, like plastic utensils. Yeah, adding on to what Nicole stated, she stated that crystalline plastics have a more tightly packed structure. Basically what that means is that the chains of molecules that are contained within that semi-crystalline plastic of PLA are packed in an ordered manner. There's an order within them. As opposed to amorphous-based polymers or plastics of PLA possess disorder within the chains of PLA. Because of that disorder, there is no level of what we call crystallinity, and thus there is no melting temperature. Amorphous polymers of PLA can only be softened, but not necessarily melted compared to crystalline polymers of PLA. A crystalline polymer is basically based on a structure. So one structure of PLA is basically where the chains of molecules are packed in an ordered manner. So think of it as lines in parallel. You can think of it like that. There are lines of these types of polymers or chains, lines of these molecules that are in parallel with another. Whereas if you look at amorphous polymers, if you look at their molecular structure, these lines are now zigzagged all around. They're not in parallel anymore. They're zigzagged and there's so much disorder and they're like, there's a whole mess of the line. It's like curves and whatnot. I really like that comparison with the zigzags and the lines. It helps us all really picture these structures of the PLA. Now, whenever I'm thinking about these straight lines versus these zigzags for the crystalline versus amorphous structure, I'm also thinking that that structure affects the properties like thermal properties and even mechanical properties. So how much heat can it withstand or even release and how much tension or how stiff it can be too? Were you able to test any of these properties that I just mentioned? We could analyze the thermal properties and the mechanical properties. We measured thermal degradation by using what we call the TGA, which is a thermogravimetric analysis where we ramp up temperature and we see at the peak at where the temperature is to see where our material is degrading, at what temperature it is degrading at. And we also look at the glass transition. And the glass transition temperature is very important in biodegradability as we experience a transition from a rigid state to a more flexible state at that certain temperature. And as we lowered our molecular weight, the glass transition also was lowered. And this defined our biodegradability. When we're analyzing the thermal degradation temperature of PLA, it is based on how much of the original weight of that material was lost based on heating it up to a certain temperature. That temperature is the thermal decomposition temperature. Usually you would see almost 100% weight loss of the material and a peak will show up. That peak defines the maximum thermal decomposition temperature. Now, another thermal property that I would like to get into is what's called the glass transition temperature. This is the temperature at which a plastic can transition from a glassy state, so a, a material that is rigid, to a rubbery state, a flexible bending type of polymer, you know, that can be bended more easily. 
this thermal property is very important when it comes to PLA's biodegradability. In order to achieve over 90% biodegradation of PLA within a reasonable time frame, say three weeks or a month, you must reach the glass transition temperature of PLA, which ranges between 50 to 60 degrees Celsius. Otherwise, PLA will just be a contaminant to the environment. So it must be under specific environmental composting conditions. Based on the glass transition temperature, you can achieve that. So aside from the thermal properties of PLA, we're also looking at the mechanical properties of polylactide. What do I mean by mechanical properties in the first place? Certain terms are, include what's called the tensile strength. The tensile strength is basically, you would call maybe the maximum stress that can be applied to that material, right? It's what we call the ultimate tensile strength. So how much stress can be applied to that material? What is the maximum amount of load that can be applied? There is also what's called the stiffness, or what we like to call the elastic modulus. That The stiffness is basically a definition of the amount of stress or, low or force that's being applied to that material over, or the ratio between the stress and the strain, or how much the material has elongated over a specific displacement or a specific length. These mechanical properties can be analyzed via mechanical testing or tensile testing, where you produce dog bone samples, samples that are basically shaped like a dog bone, and you basically stretch them out to a specific load or a specific displacement. Once it breaks, you can achieve stress strain curves to analyze these sorts of mechanical properties, such as tensile strength and stiffness. What are the ways that you test the mechanical properties of these bioplastics that you had mentioned was seeing how much weight the material could actually withstand. How strong is a bioplastic then compared to a conventional plastic? Do they differ in strength? Are they similar or are bioplastics better? Unfortunately, I'm going to be honest here. When it comes to bioplastics such as PLA, their mechanical strength is lower or it's basically undermined compared to uh, conventional plastics. Unfortunately, if you want to produce polylactide of, you know, excellent mechanical properties like high stiffness, high tensile strength, and be able to achieve like very high loads, you will need to reinforce the biodegradable polymer with an additive or with another polymer of varying material properties. So this is one of the issues that bioplastics such as PLA, this is one of the issues that we're currently facing in the field of bioplastics. Why do we not see such a huge scale of bioplastics? It's because their mechanical properties, at least for polylactide or PLA, are not as good as conventional plastics that are out there, unfortunately. Yes, to touch on that, Mo, although we bioplastics are not always as strong as conventional plastics, you're correct, we can add additives to them to make them stronger. And that also comes with what we mentioned earlier about adding various isomers and modifying our actual polymer to make it stronger and create it so that it has a higher molecular weight, which in turn makes it a stronger material that is still suitable for use and for our applications. It's cool that the flexibility and rigidness were also affected by the weight. You mentioned that this could impact biodegradability. How do you test that though? I would imagine that bioplastics don't degrade fast because then you can't use it realistically. So how do you test the biodegradability in a laboratory setting? So Chelsea, the way that we test the biodegradability of our bioplastics, specifically our PLA, we mainly use what we call aqueous biodegradation in our lab. 
And this is where we do titrations of our materials. And when we test with our titrations, we are analyzing the carbon dioxide release through our titrations. So the way that we measure the actual biodegrad the way that we measure the actual biodegradability of our material is by using aqueous biodegradation. And aqueous biodegradation means that we are using a sodium hydroxide solution that we are titrating our material with. And for reference, to describe a titration, this titration is a process that we use to determine the concentration of our PLA material. And we use, do this in terms of the a small amount of our reagent that is required to bring an effect in our reaction with a known volume. So we use this and we use sodium hydroxide. And we want to, in the end, analyze our carbon dioxide release through our titrations. And we want a smaller carbon dioxide release to see how it is being affected environmentally. These aqueous biodegradation setups are being controlled at different temperatures and humidities. So if you remember from what I stated before, the glass transition is the driving factor behind biodegradability. So what we need to do is analyze the carbon dioxide release or the titrations at different temperature and humidity conditions. It can range from ocean temperature, which can be less than zero degrees Celsius, all the way to 60 degrees Celsius, which is the glass transition temperature of PLA. So it's important to know what environmental conditions are you running this biodegradation at. It's a lot of testing that you have to do just to understand what the biodegradation is of these bioplastics. That also makes me think about the safety aspects of the bioplastics if you're thinking about commercialization. One plastic that people are familiar with is BPA and how it could have harmful effects to a person's body, such as their fertility. Do bioplastics exhibit any of these properties and have they been tested? As opposed to BPA, I'll tell you right now, PLA is fairly harmless for the most part, if ingested. It is a material that's derived from starch, right? So it's not going to give you cancer or anything. I'll be honest on that end. However, you do bring up a good point when it comes to using bioplastics for medical device applications. PLA in and of itself cannot be used alone for uh, medical device applications such as hip implants, knee implants, drug delivery, and so on. Why is that? Because as I said before, PLA's degradation, PLA can only degrade under certain environmental conditions. Based on current studies that my group and Dr. Contag's group from the biomedical engineering group department had done, we had actually observed that the body may reject PLA. What do I mean by this? When we basically, if we're trying to use PLA as an implant, you will notice inflammation in your body, in certain parts of your body. That means the body is rejecting PLA. So this reduces biocompatibility of PLA. In order to improve biocompatibility and reduce this sort of inflammation, you must reinforce the PLA with drug inhibitors, thus reducing inflammation. So basically, to conclude with your, with your answer, Dan, PLA is harmless, but if you want to use it for biomedical applications, you need to reinforce it with drugs and, and other inhibitors to reduce inflammation from the body. And to add a little bit to that, as we really said in the beginning, bioplastics like PLA do come from natural resources. And already using natural resources adds a significant safety factor than using non-renewable resources like fossil fuels. 
So because of that, yes, they are much safer. But as Mo said, for further and more advanced applications, they would need certain additives that would be more drug-based. It's really great that you were able to take this a step further. We're actually quite familiar with Dr. Contag's lab, and we've interviewed some of his students, such as Victoria Tumajian, about her research on exosomes. Earlier in this interview, you had said that you would like to take this to a commercial level and really scale it up, though. How difficult would this be, and would it be expensive to do that? What would you need in order to do this? Well, the real question here, Chelsea, is what are we trying to scale up in the first place? So when we're talking about you know, scaling up a material from lab scale to pilot scale, the most important thing that comes to mind is how are you going to mass produce your final product, whether it just be PLA alone, whether it be PLA reinforced with other, with other materials, whether it be PLA, you know, mixed or, or blended with another polymer. The main factor that comes to mind is what's called reactive extrusion. Reactive extrusion is the main polymer processing method that actually industries follow to mass produce plastics for commercial application. So yes, you may be able to successfully produce your PLA with some additive or material in a lab scale reaction vessel. But does that mean that you'll be able to produce it in a production rate of, you know, let's say 15 kilograms an hour? That's the real question. How fast can you produce this material and how much of that material can you produce? That's what makes our group unique. Using what's called an extruder, we are able to mass produce PLA of varying material properties at, in the pilot scale level. If you're able to mass produce this in the pilot scale level with excellent material properties and and great biodegradability, then there is potential for commercialization of our product. And yes, Mo, we do a lot of reactive extrusion, and that's what's very special about our group and makes us unique from other research labs where we can actually take our product and put it into the manufacturing setting. It's also difficult sometimes to scale up even further with material like this or with a project because it's very industry setup can be very expensive. So that's an inhibitor along with cost as to scaling it up even further at the moment. It's just the production cost is a bit more expensive than polyethylene and polypropylene because Mm -hmm. demand for bioplastics is not as high. If we can increase demand of those plastics, then we'd be able to reduce the cost. Well, we've talked a lot about all the work that you've been doing investigating the properties of bioplastics, as well as things like the commercialization of them. But to wrap up our interview, I would love to hear about each of your plans for the future. Nicole, you had just graduated, so are you looking into possibly any graduate programs, or are you going to go into the industry sector using your experience in bioplastics? And then Mo, what are your plans once you finish your PhD? Thank you, Danny, for that question. Yeah, so I did just graduate in May of 2021, this past May, and I decided to go right into industry, and I'm currently a process engineer at a P&G. I started about one month ago, so I absolutely love that, and it was my passion to go right into the industry and kind of take my chemical engineering knowledge and my love that I've realized through the research lab of manufacturing and kind of make that my life career. So that is what I have been doing after college. I've always been interested in the R&D sector of industry. I plan to go straight into industry after I graduate, hopefully May of 2022. 
crossing my fingers, but I'm looking to either work in the consumer goods industry or the medical device industry, just due to my previous internship experience at those fields. But I know I want to be a scientist at heart. I'm passionate about research and I want to impact society by commercializing my products. Congrats on the new job, Nicole. P&G is a wonderful company. And Mo, good luck on working in the industry as well. I think it's wonderful the work that you both have been doing, and I'm really excited to hear what you'll be accomplishing in the future. Thanks again for joining us today on The Sci-Files. Thank you both so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate the time you took to interview us, and I hope we were able to give listeners a better idea of bioplastics and their impact in the world. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science. <laughs>